Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Uh, today on the podcast, we are looking at uh, a rather difficult passage in Genesis where Abraham takes Isaac on top of the mountain to sacrifice and to please God. Uh, this is a passage I've avoided for years, but I find that as we look into it, we actually find some, some very interesting things so the title of this message is All is Grace. And uh, got a few things coming up that you can check out on our website or on our Facebook page. But uh, for now, let's go ahead and head to the talk. Motion Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Starting in verse 1, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two, two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had gotten enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place at the dis, in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. (laughs) The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Last week I said, I didn't want to do the passage that we did last week. And this is another one I don't want to do. (laughs) This is a crazy story. I mean, let's, let's just be real. If you ran into some old guy who said he's hearing the voice of God and God told him, I need to take my kid up on a mountain and kill him, what would we do with that person? Lock him up, right? It's, it's, it's crazy talk. 
Not to mention that when we see Jesus Christ, it, Jesus doesn't seem to, it, it just doesn't seem to match Jesus. It's a conflicting passage. Last week's message, if you haven't heard, it's on our podcast. Um, but I talked about the crazy story of Hagar and Ishmael. And I, I kind of left the, the message last week. I called the message God in the mess because I said, the, you know, one of the reasons that it's hard to preach a lot of these Old Testament passages because they don't have a nice little point, a nice little moral at the end of the story where you can just wrap a bow around it and say, and this is how you're supposed to live life. In the passage last week, the protagonist, Abraham and Sarah, they sin. I mean, they've got good motives, but they sin anyway. And they hurt people. There's real destruction. And poor Hagar's cast out. And then she bumps into God and then goes back. And then she's cast out again. And Ishmael, and you know, just thinks it's just a, it's a crazy story. But somehow, God enters into the mess of it. And if there's any message that I can get about it, there's not a real moral. Like, I can't say, like, hey, just live like Abraham. <laughs> if there's a moral I can get out of last week's passage is that God will enter into the mess of our lives. And that's good news. That's gospel there. But if last week was a soap opera, this one's like a horror story. <laughs> it, kicks it kicks it way up. And I don't think I've ever done a message on this passage because I'm like, this is just too crazy. So I want to start by inviting the uh, young males up to the front of the stage. We're going to do a mock sec. Just kidding. <laughs> well... I think what we're going to actually find in this passage, there's some really good stuff here. As crazy as the story sounds to us, I think we're going to find something beautiful about God in the process. So, this story starts out, it says that God tested Abraham. I was actually, as I was studying for this passage this week, I, I came across, this is, uh, there's a lot of Jewish scholars who, who talk about um, this was the final test of Abraham. There's 10 tests of Abraham that you can see in his story up to this point. The first test is, will you follow God? Abraham, follow me, and I'm going to make you a, a, your descendants a you know, multitude. Just follow me. And Abraham passes that first test. There's other tests, like the one we talked about last week, where Abraham didn't pass. <laughs> you know, they, they tried to help God out. But this is the final test. And some uh, biblical scholars from the Jewish tradition actually see this, this testing of Abraham right here as kind of parallel to the testing of Job that we see in the opening chapter, the, the prologue of Job, where Satan comes to God and says, yeah, this guy Job, he only likes you because you take care of him and you do all this stuff for him, but I bet you take that stuff away, he's going to deny you. And in a sense, this is kind of putting it in that same kind of language. This test is not just about Abraham passing the test, but it's, it's actually showing Abraham's faithfulness to the principalities and powers of that day. So will Abraham trust the God who promised and then delivered him the heir who he loves even when God seems to want Abraham to sacrifice the very thing that he gave him? Think about this. Abraham is cut off from his past. When, when God asks him, come follow me, he leaves his family. He leaves his homeland, his religion, goes to a place he doesn't know. He's cut off from his past. And it takes years for God to fulfill the, the first part of his promise to have an heir. And when he finally gets the heir, the, you know, Isaac at this point in the story is about, you know, his early teenage years. So, I mean, it's, 
I, I mean, I'm kind of thinking of it like me and Ezra. My son Ezra is 14. I'm like, you know, Isaac's probably around that age. He's not just a little kid who doesn't understand. Hey, Dad, we going on a camping trip? Yeah. <laughs> can, can you carry the wood? <laughs> now, when we look at this story from a modern point of view, it looks crazy, right? I mean, it looks, it looks crazy. Let's be honest. Can we be honest? Sometimes the Bible looks crazy. But I need to remind us something when we look at history, that even when we look at our own history, and I'm talking about our own individual history, it doesn't take getting down the road too far to be able to look back on your own life and be maybe a a little ashamed of some of the things (laughs) you were doing at certain points. Like, have you ever looked at pictures of yourself from, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago and been like, what was that guy thinking? (laughs) Like, there was this phase... I don't know if, if, if any of y'all lived through this, survived it. Um, MC Hammer Pants, remember that? <laughs> can't touch this. I, I can't even. I can't even do it. Can't even do it. I I got a pair of MC Hammer Pants. I think it was like 1991. But I wasn't content with just MC Hammer Pants. Like I had to be an individual, so I wore biker boots. With MC Hammer pants. I think that was the exact, uh, the exact outfit I was wearing the day that I got jumped by some guys out in front of my apartment. <laughs> it was probably for committing that fashion crime. Um, but yeah, I can look back on a picture like that of my life. Or, there, you know, there's another embarrassing phase when I was in seventh grade. There was this show, Miami Vice. Did I, some of y'all, y'all did the Miami Vice thing. I had the white pants, the deck shoes that you'd wear without socks, so your feet were always hurting, you know, blistered up, and, uh, and the Ray-Ban sunglasses, the white blazers, the pastel t-shirt, and I, I, I just moved to this little town called Breckenridge, Texas, which was a little bitty town right after my parents got divorced, and I thought, you know, I'm going to show up to school and impress these, these kids. It was just a little rural town in West Texas. I show up dressed like... Miami Vice, and I got my butt kicked again. So I, I'm starting to see a, starting to see a theme. <laughs> so we bump into these things even in our own life. Fashion's kind of a silly thing, but you know, when we were just on our road trip a couple of weeks ago, the last leg of our trip, we left Colorado early in the morning. We make it to Amarillo, not by morning, but by about noon. And we were about to pull into a place to eat. And Dina loves Waffle House. Like, she's such a cheap date. I love that about her. And so I'm like, you know, I've been making her eat Mexican food for three weeks straight. So I was like, okay, we'll give, we'll give her Waffle House. So we pull over at this Waffle House in Amarillo, Texas. We walk in the front door. And there's smoking in there. Cigarettes. How long has it been since you've seen a, a restaurant where you, like, a smoking section? Isn't that funny? Like, like. Like, the, the smoke's just going to stay over here. Um, so I was, like, I, I was already in my mind envisioning, like, the scattered, smothered, covered hash browns that I was going to get. And then we walk in, and we had to walk out, you know, because Dina won't tolerate that. I try to smoke around the house all the time, and she just doesn't allow me to have a smoking section there. Just kidding, just kidding. Um, so, but, but as we walked in there and walked out, I was like, Wow, there are still places in the United States where you can eat some hash browns and smoke a cigarette while you're doing it. 
And it seems so like jarring because you just don't bump into that, except probably in Mississippi. I think there's still a little, a few towns in Mississippi. Um, uh, yeah, there you go. But we've kind of moved on as a society, and we kind of realized like smoking cigarettes and eating food at the same time is, you know, like it's not good for everybody. You know, if you want to ruin your life, you go smoke outside and then eat your hash browns. But you know, don't make everybody else have your secondhand smoke. We've evolved as a culture. But that was like only 20 years ago where everybody, you could even smoke on airplanes, kids. Isn't that crazy? Smoking on an airplane. Dang. But these are kind of some funny examples. But, you know, it it doesn't take that long to go back in this country's history to start bumping into some things that we would find reprehensible today, like segregation. Was that back in the early 60s? Like, like late 60s? I mean, yeah, it, it was not long ago blacks and whites were separated in society. Black and white people had different fountains, different restrooms, different places they could sit on a bus. And we think, those people were crazy back then. And yet that wasn't very far back in our history. And here's the deal. The further you go back in time, the crazier it gets. And so I just say this because when we study history, we come across some crazy stuff. But here's the deal. Chances are, if you lived in certain times in history, you probably would have naturally gone along with whatever the norms of society were. So as much as we want to go, Abraham, you know, like killing your son to please God, like that's crazy. Well, it's crazy to us. The reality is, In that day and that time, child sacrifice was not something crazy. It was actually common. It wasn't something rare. And it wasn't just something pertaining to that part of the world, the Middle East. You can actually find evidence of child sacrifice uh, from Peru to Africa to East Asia. They don't find much of it in America because there weren't many, many people over here. But everywhere in the world at that time, it was a common thing to try to please the gods by offering a sacrifice. If you wanted to to get a little blessing, you offer a little sacrifice. But if it was a big deal, you offer something costly. And what could be more costly than your own offspring? So when we look at this story, we need to realize Abraham grew up a pagan. In a, in a society that worshipped multiples of gods that had where child sacrifice was common, but, but even if you weren't sacrificing kids, you were sacrificing animals. It was just the normal thing that Abraham grew up in. Abraham is called to follow God at an old age. So he's had a whole life of living under this reality, being shaped by the beliefs and the religions of his culture and society. And so there's some things that God has to adjust in him along the way. And I think what's going on in this story is God is actually addressing one of the core beliefs that Abraham has about the divine in order to reveal to Abraham that, he, that God is not like those other gods at all. You know, when I say a word like Paris, that word conjures up pictures in our mind, right? Eiffel Tower. How many people have been to Paris before? I've been to Paris, Texas, but that's about as far as I've been. 
It's an interesting thing. I've never been to Paris, but I've noticed something as I've traveled the world. Oftentimes, when I'm getting ready to go to a place that I don't know, I, I start looking up articles and pictures and stuff, and I've got some kind of grid, but it's completely different from when you actually get there, right? It's kind of like marriage. Before I got married, I'm like, how hard can this thing be? We're going to be loving each other and having sex and sharing the bills. Like, this sounds like, a, like easy. Realized a few days into it, there's going to be a little bit more to it than that. Uh, it was going to be hard. It's going to be difficult because it's a relationship. The reality, you know, so oftentimes we have a definition in our mind that is based not just on what Webster's Dictionary says. The, the true definition in our mind is usually based on either our lack of experience or our experience of something. So we were having this conversation in teaching team a few weeks ago um, before I left on the trip about fathers. It's specifically talking about God as father. And this, this was a bit of a contentious issue on our teaching team because we have people on our teaching team who grew up without a father. We've got people who've had an abusive father. Um, and it, it's a mixed bag. And, and, and it's, it's such a difficult thing if you've been raised with a father who's abusive emotionally or physically or absent or emotionally distant to come into church and then call God Father when all you know how to define Father is, is the baggage you picked up, that's a hard thing. It's a very real struggle. The same kind of thing we have going on with Abraham. He's got an idea of what God is, what God expects, how God works. And it's based not on what God's done, but on his experience in the culture. This is what everybody knows. This is how the gods act. They want you to sacrifice things. They want you to jump through hoops. Uh, they're capricious. They're, you know, the gods aren't consistent. You know, you've always got to kind of be insecure around them. And, and that's how Abraham understood things. You know, I, ha I had an instance years ago... Um, when I first came on staff at the Vineyard in Kenner, um, it, was a, it was a tough year. The first of the year when I came on staff, they were doing five services on the weekend. By the end of that first year, they're up to seven services on the weekend, and I'm still playing some gigs outside of the church. There were some weekends where I was singing 22 hours on a weekend, you know, just crazy. And I, so needless to say, like after a year of doing that, I was burned out and I was starting to, I, I was very disconnected from other people on staff and the pastor. And it just, I was starting to feel grumpy and, and just, I had all these things to tell Phil, the pastor there. And I, I'd sent him emails. Well, I wrote him emails and I never sent him. I wrote him letters, never sent him because I'd always back out. Why? Because my experience with pastors up to that point was if you have a disagreement with a pastor on a doctrinal issue or something in the church, uh, if any time I voiced an issue with other pastors, they're like, you're in rebellion. Rebellion's the sin of witchcraft. You're a witch. That's, that's, that's the line of thinking that I was told, you know. Uh, and, and it was either like my way or the highway. And that's all I'd ever experienced from pastors before then. And finally, it got to the point where I was just, I'm, I'm like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And finally, Phil called up. He's like, we need to have a meeting. And I called Dina on the way over to that meeting. I said, Dina, I will look for another job tomorrow. Because I was convinced he's going to be just like every other pastor that I'd ever come in contact with. 
And so I, I, but I was like, you know, I'm just going to tell him how I feel. And I told him how I felt. And when I got done, he goes, you know, let's, let's try to reset this whole relationship. You know, you brought up some good points and, you know, we need to work on this. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? And I really, I look at that moment, that one conversation that day changed my life. It also changed Phil's life, too, though. Because Phil had had a similar experience with worship leaders. <laughs> and it was in that space between, we began to work on our relationship. And it began to touch the rest of the staff. And it began to touch the church. That one conversation. And I would credit even that conversation with probably one of the reasons I eventually signed up to be a pastor. Because I realized you don't have to be a jerk to be a pastor. You don't have to be a controlling, insecure, egotistical person to be a pastor. Like, there's another way to do it. But it took me coming face-to-face with that wound and with the Holy Spirit operating in the midst to bring healing to my conception of what pastor meant. So that word, pastor, now had a new definition for me. I say all of that. This, is, this sounds like a whole long intro. We're almost done, though. <laughs> I say all that because I think that that is exactly what is going on in this passage. A guy who's been raised up in a polytheistic religious landscape where everybody's got to sacrifice to the gods all the time to make the gods happy, to get blessings, to, to not be cursed. they, they got to be jumping through all these hoops. And Abraham is, is asked to sacrifice the one thing that God promised to give him, an heir, a son, a son who he loves, who's a teenager by this point. They've got a relationship and everything. And Abraham goes, okay. But right as he's about to bring the knife down, God stops him. And I think the point of what God was getting at with all this is, Abraham, I am not like those other gods. I'm not asking you to jump through hoops. I'm not demanding from you sacrifice. If anything, what we see in this story is that it's all grace. From the promise that Abraham got from God to the delivering of his, his son, to the actual like fulfillment of that process, to the future. Everything is grace. Abraham does nothing to deserve it. He does nothing to lose it. If anything, this test is, is really not a test that Abraham has to pass. It's something that God is setting up to reveal himself. There was a, I, I came across a passage that, as I was preparing for this, just kind of looking up child sacrifice in the Bible. There's actually some child sacrifice in the Bible. Um, and I think many, many people are familiar with Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8 says that. I've heard that passage plenty of times. I can't recall a time hearing 
somebody sharing the other passages in front of it. Here's the other two verses in front of that. In Micah 6, verse 6, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then comes the answer. No, <laughs> he has shown you, O mortal, what to do and what, is, what the Lord requires of you to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. See, it's interesting. We, there's, there's kind of two, two streams of thought that, that are prominent in the Old Testament. One is the, that comes about with Moses and the priestly order, which is all about sacrifice and, and you know, atoning for sins and, and kind of covenant stuff. But we see this other line that goes all the way back to Abraham and continues mainly through the prophets in the Old Testament that is saying over and over again, God does not care about your sacrifice. He doesn't want you to jump through hoops. He's not looking for you to carry on and, and you know, how big of a sacrifice you can do and what extravagant religious things he's, you can do. He's not looking for that. He wants you to act justly, to love mercy, and walk in humility. Do those things. That's the sacrifice God's looking for. Or as Psalm 51 puts it, the sacrifice of God or a broken heart, a contrite spirit, somebody who has just been broken. I got nothing to prove anymore. I'm not trying to, 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 to do all these other things that are way too lofty for me. I calmed and quieted my soul. I'm just going to humbly walk before the Lord my God. Jesus even said so much. He says to the Pharisees, I want you to figure out what this means. He's quoting from the Old Testament. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And yet, when I look around the world today, yes, we don't have child sacrifice. We don't even have animal sacrifice in this country. Glory to God. But... We live in a world where our society, our culture, even the church gives us pictures of God, don't we? I remember for, for the first decade that I was a Christian, I was always told, if you want to get more from God, you got to give God more. Drop a little extra money in this, in this offering, and God's guaranteed to give you 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold increase. I've actually heard televangelists get up there and say the same thing. I, it's a money-back guarantee. It's not really money-back guarantee, but we're going to say that tonight. If you give this amount of money, uh, you, you know, you're going to be rich. I had friends that have almost bankrupted themselves doing that. It doesn't work. I'm not saying that there isn't something to sowing and reaping. I think if you sow into anything, if you're, you know, I mean, if, if, if you're generous, people are going to be generous to you if you're kind. You know, like, I, there, there is a principle. But when we start putting this on God, saying that if you just do this thing, this thing, this thing, and this thing, then God's going to do all this for you. It, it's not what God's after. He says so much right here. Yes, we need to be generous. Why were we generous? Because God's generous. And we're his people. And we trust him. But we're not trying to get God to bless us. And we're not trying to get God to not curse us. My 
relationship with God was like this for years and years and years. It was an emotional roller coaster. Anytime something bad happened, getting a flat tire, getting a bad grade in school, I don't know why I'd blame that on God, but anytime something went wrong, God's mad at me. I need to offer some kind of sacrifice. I need to pray more. Maybe if I I quoted more scripture, maybe if I memorized the Bible, maybe if I did more stuff at church, God would be pleased. But it didn't happen that way. What I've really found over the years is that just like Abraham, God keeps leading me into my faulty pictures of God. And sometimes it's through painful circumstances, Sometimes because most of the time we don't want to confront those things. But God is over and over by his spirit moving in to, within me to confront these false pictures of God that I've been given by religion, that I've been given by the United States of America, that I've been given by uh, the, the family of origin, everything. God is trying to change those things so that I can truly see God for who he is. Now, does prayer play a part in this? Yes. Does reading the Bible? I'm not anti those things. I'm just don't treat scripture or prayer or church activities like it gets you points with God. It doesn't. We're happy for you to serve here, by the way. Wait, I do think God gives you extra points for serving in children's ministry. I'm sorry. (laughs) But even what James said in the New Testament, true religion is ministering to widows and orphans. I mean, so I'm trying to tie that in. Is that good? So I just want to close with, with just one last little thought here. In the last remaining two minutes. (laughs) Jesus said this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, when I look around this culture in the church, a lot of stuff that gets projected onto Jesus. We've got a Republican Jesus, Democratic Jesus, Patriot Jesus. He's probably going to be showing up. He's probably at a lot of churches this morning. Um... Wearing, wearing an American flag and got his AK-47 ready to go kill some Muslims or something. I mean, but but these, are, these are common views of God in our culture. People put this on Jesus. My challenge is to you is to look at Jesus and try to notice your own biases. Where have you picked up your own biases? Where have you gotten these ideas of how God is? And start sitting with it. Start gazing at who Jesus is. Start listening to him. Start saying, does this picture that I see in the Gospels of who God is, does this actually match the God that I've been given by my culture? Does this, actually, this, does this God here, this Jesus, does this actually match the God that religion has handed to me? Does this Jesus right here actually match what my family's given to me? So much of my journey over the years, even to this day, it's just confronting one thing after another to reveal God to me. I can hold on to the God of my culture, my politics, my class, my family. I can hold on to that. But I'm going to miss out on what it's like to be in a relationship with a real deal God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father.
Why don't you stand? Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you for your grace through which you called us to follow you. We thank you for the grace of your promises towards us. We thank you for your grace in fulfilling those promises, God, and we thank you for your grace that you've got the future covered as well. Lord, we hear your call to Abraham to follow you. We hear the call of you, Jesus, to your own disciples to follow you, God. Today, we just admit that we bring nothing to the table at all, that we're going to screw up, we're going to get it wrong, but we're committed to follow you, God. And as we follow you, Lord, we just ask you, Lord, even this day, Holy Spirit, renew our minds where we've got false pictures of God, we ask you to tear those things down, God. Where we have wounds that we've received from people in ministry, from churches, or even from society concerning you, God, we pray that you would heal those things. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to know the one true God. Amen. Amen. Well, go out, love, mercy, walk justly. Walk humbly with your God. If, any, if anybody needs a little, little prayer, you can come up here to the front. We'll gather some of our uh, prayer warriors together to pray on you, pray for you. God bless. <laughs>